Hello and welcome to the Bristol to Beijing podcast. I'm Luke Grenfell-Shaw and I'm cycling from Bristol to Beijing on my tandem Chris. I left Bristol in January 2020 and it's fair to say it hasn't been straightforward so far. As I continue my expedition, I want to share the journey with you. And each episode, I'll be sharing my thoughts and experiences from the past week on the road. And occasionally, I'll also be chatting with someone who can shed some light on the country I'm in as I try and understand the world a little better. So, without further ado, what's happened this past week? Luke, where are you? So, I'm now in Samsung. Over the past week, I've managed to cycle from, well, Sungluru to Samsung. I started, as everyone will remember, in Ankara, and I've made good progress. So I'm on the coast with the Black Sea. In fact, I can see it right now. I'm high up on the hill, which overlooks a lot of Samsung, but there's this grey, grey mist. And so whilst the most of this week has been beautiful sunshine, which has just been gorgeous and very unseasonal, I've now been transported into something equally unseasonable, and that is a forecast for this coming week of snow, basically every day. And the last time they had a forecast like that in February was 1987. So you're also suffering from the beast from the east as we are here in the UK. We've got minus 20 degree temperatures and it seems to be spreading to Turkey. Yeah, I mean, I was laughing at everyone who was telling me just how cold it was in the UK and I was feeling rather smug. But now I'm going to have to somehow cycle through it over the next week, really. So that's going to be that's going to be fun. Last week, we left you with a broken bike with one wheel rather than two. How did that get fixed? And when were you able to get back on the road again? This week, I feel, can be summed up more than anything in like the week where so many people in Turkey have come and helped and made the cycle ride possible and two names stand out more than any others and one of them we've heard of before that's Sin and Kaji who cycled with me for the first three days of this ride and the second is Hakan I messaged Sinan and I said look you know the wheel is a big big problem and he's like right I've got a mate in Ankara who might be able to sort you out so he messages Hakan Within an hour, Hakan comes to the bike shop where I am and he has this like kind of whole array of dental equipment in his boot of his car. Why does he have dental equipment? So Sinan was from Istanbul. So Sinan's not in Ankara. Correct. But Sinan was a cycling dentist. A dental cyclist. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So is he spreading the word amongst the dental community in Turkey? Well, not exactly, but he is spreading the word. Hakan is a mechanical engineer. He's not a dentist, but his equipment were, you know, this array of drills and brushes. And I expected we we're going to go to some like workshop to have a go at this bike. So what we are trying to do is get these embedded bolts out of their holes, essentially. And there was no way you could get a screwdriver into it. So we somehow needed to put a groove into the heads of these bolts that had like snapped mm. off. And I thought we were going to be going to some workshop. And instead, Hakan comes up in this car and opens his boot. And then there's this array of drills. And then we go outside the bike shop because we're not allowed in because of COVID. He plugs a drill into the wall, the socket on the outside. And we just start drilling away, etching into this bolt head in a car park. To give you enough purchase to be able to then turn a screwdriver. Yeah, exactly. And we weren't successful at that point. And he's like... Luke, you know, just just leave it with me. I'll go and work on it overnight. And I was like, 
Um, I don't want to let this out of my sight. This is like, this is the ride, this back wheel. And if things go pear-shaped, he's like, no, it's fine. And Sunan was just like, this guy absolutely knows his stuff. And I was like, I've, I've got to trust him. And so I did. And then the next morning I get this message. It's a photo and the three bolts were out. Oh. Can I just put this into perspective? What was basically done was impossible in that any bike shop from the UK, including where we got the tandem from, Roloff, who are the gear manufacturers themselves, said, you know, this just has to get sent to Germany. You can't get those bolts out. Mm -hmm. It took someone like Sinan, like Hakan, to be like, actually, we have some really highly honed skills. Mm -hmm. We've got some really precise equipment and we back ourselves to do something that a bike shop wouldn't do. Okay. So huge, huge, huge thanks to Hakan and also to Sinan. These guys were just, just incredible. The ride wouldn't be rolling without them now. You said that you had to trust someone you've only just met with the wheel of your bike, which obviously without you're pretty much screwed. How much would you say that's been part of the ride so far? Sort of having to trust people that you've only just met or trust people that you don't really know anything about? Yeah, that is a great question. I think that was one of the times I've had to trust people most of all, because it was something that was very, very important and completely out of my control. But I also felt very comfortable doing it because I knew Sinan. Mm. And this is a guy who got old Nokia phones and made them wirelessly charge. I would love one of those. I know, right? It's amazing. That level of tinkering and attention to detail so I really trusted Sinan when Sinan said, you know, this guy knows his stuff to be like, yes. But I've been reflecting on this quite a bit, actually, that the vast majority of times when I meet people in a situation where I need to trust them. Mm. So I'm not talking about like in a cafe or asking for directions. I mean, like going into someone's house or mm. something like that. There is actually usually a connection one way or the other. I either say because it's through a friend of a friend or because someone's got in contact through social media and has heard about the ride. And so there's a bit of a link there or it's something like warm showers, which is kind of like couch surfing for cyclists. And then there's a, you know, a system of reviews. So there are these building blocks in place for trust. And it's actually quite unusual to go into a situation where you really have to trust someone and you really don't know very much about them mm. in any way. Um, but it is, it's something I've thought about quite a lot about what would a situation be where the alarm bells start going. Yeah. Have you had any moments where you felt slightly uneasy at all? Um, not many. That probably means I'm not actually going out of my comfort zone enough. I don't think that's necessarily like a good thing. There was one time when I was by the side of the road in Romania and some guys came up in a car uh, with a Bulgarian number plate and they're like, oh, can you help us? We need to buy some oil for our car. And most of the time I'd probably just be like, no, or whatever. But someone had actually given me some money that day to support the ride. And mm. I was like, oh, well, someone's helped me. Maybe I can help them. And so I ended up after a bit of time giving the guys some money. And I was like, you know, just here you go. Uh, and then he was like, oh, here's my ring. I just really want to say thank you. Gold ring, apparently. No, I'm not taking your ring. But it was one of those moments where you're quite glad that nothing else happened, that you're glad that you get away, that you just cut those ties. And mm. it's one of those situations where things can spiral out of control is what I would intuitively think. Had I taken that guy's ring, 
then all of a sudden a ring that he just wanted me have could have all sorts of strings attached to it. Mm. But generally, no. Okay. That's reassuring to hear that there's faith and in humanity and people generally are kind and trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, generally. So far. So you had a good experience in Turkey this week with the people that you've met. And then you cycled on once you got your bike wheel towards Samson which is where you are now. Mm-hmm. Any right. stories from your time spent cycling? Did you have anyone on the back of the bike or were you on your own? I was joined again by Neil Lockman, which was just fantastic. Neil is a wonderful guy. Your time with him was cut short last week, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. And I was thrilled that he found the time and wanted to rejoin, do what we originally planned to do, which was go to Samsung. And when we had a bit of bike maintenance to do, when we got to Sungluru, there's a couple other things that needed to get changed. <laughs> Recurring theme. At the moment, yeah. And you know, today is Valentine's Day and I wanted to give Chris a ring, a chain ring. Excellent. So we needed to replace this old chain ring and there are five bolts that you need to sort of get out. And we got four of them out and another was just stuck and the kind of groove that you use a screwdriver to get it out with, the groove had just worn away. So we couldn't get it out. And so Anil went round looking for a bike shop and he found a bike shop and did so much that was incredibly helpful because I can't speak very much Turkish at all. And he explained the problem and this guy comes out of the bike shop and tries to help us. This is like a small bike shop in a small town with about five kids mountain bikes. You know, mm-hmm. that's the kind of... And eventually we, we can't get it out. And the suggestion comes, well, you know, you could use an axle grinder. Okay. And this is kind of something that's a bit bit dire, kind of quite mm. quite a bit of a final final solution to get this out. Yeah. But that's what we did. Ended up taking an axle grinder to take off the top of the head, okay. then boxed it through. So I was in the middle of the street with the sparks flying everywhere. And then we ended up using a bolt and a nut to sort of hold the chain ring back together. So it was a very brutal bit of bike maintenance. And Neil was just incredibly patient through about the four hours it took before we could actually start that day. And then he just put so much power down and got the music going. Two boom boxes on the back this time. Excellent. We were having a lot of fun. Wonderful stuff. Any songs in particular that were the tunes of the week for your cycling? Ooh, he had a great classic rock playlist. So that was good. Nice. I remember you saying you had a choice between cycling a hilly route or cycling a flatter route what's the sort of terrain been like as you've been cycling along so to get to samson it hasn't been flat for sure but it's been a lot flatter than it would have been if we'd headed east what's been quite interesting is how much the landscape has changed so it started as quite arid and dry these uh red craggy rocks either side but this last day and a half getting towards Samsung, it's changed totally. There's now grass, there are trees. And what it reminds me of mm-hmm. are the Pennines. Okay. Quite green, yeah. quite rolling, much softer hills. Mm-hmm. But also this feeling that life isn't quite flourishing. And bear in mind, we are in February. I'm yeah. sure it would look quite different in June or July. But it really is very reminiscent to me of like cycling in the Pennines when I was at Durham. And it feels quite quite odd that in Turkey there are so many different climates environments and landscapes and you're exploring as much of it as you can trying to and now I'm going to see more of the coastal bit obviously each week we ask people to send in questions and I've Mm. got some questions that have been sent in this week for Mm. you thank you guys thanks everyone for asking questions love them 
Yes, if you've got any questions for Luke, do send them in via social media to Bristol to Beijing on Facebook or on Instagram. Question from Lily Moran. Lily asks whether it's been difficult for you traveling on your bike through COVID. Given that you started the ride at the beginning of 2020, when COVID was sort of a blip on the horizon, none of us really realized, I don't think, what it was going to be like. Mm. And you're able to compare those initial few months with what it's been like now. What's been the most difficult things? So I guess there have been phases of difficulty. One of the big difficulties that came with COVID uh, apart from having to stop the whole ride and then restart, it was knowing when to restart. That was mm-hmm. certainly one difficulty because there was no clear point of things have gone back to normal or, of course, you're going to be able to cross borders. So when I went out to Germany, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to get into Austria and like after Austria. But at that point, I just made the decision that there would never be a perfect time or not in the next two years probably Mm -hmm. and if I didn't at least attempt to carry on I would probably regret it for for the rest of my life but actually since restarting it has been a lot easier to travel than I expected and I feel incredibly grateful to be able to travel at this time when you know right now I'm keenly aware that Everyone in the UK cannot travel and having escaped the UK six months ago, you know, and having you know, been in Ukraine and then Turkey, the restrictions aren't as severe. But I think one of the keys has been flexibility. So Hungary closed its borders and I was trying to follow the Danube and that goes through Hungary. So instead I had to go through Austria, Slovenia, Croatia, and then rejoin the Danube in Serbia. And on one hand, that could be really annoying. But when you travel at this time, there are going to be so many changes to the plan. And I guess the, the, what I try and do is see them as opportunities, I suppose, that I get to go through Slovenia and Croatia and go through these countries I wouldn't have gone through otherwise. And then I was hoping to cross into Russia from Ukraine, but that border was closed. And so instead, I've been cycling through Turkey. And that has also been fantastic. So in some ways, the more loopy and backwards and forwards this ride goes it means i get to see more places spend more time with people and thus it is a cliched mantra of mine but turn the challenge into an opportunity you know something that doesn't seem ideal well where where are the opportunities in it and in sometimes that's easy to do and sometimes that's very very difficult i think you've really done that with this sort of second half of the ride since you've restarted it another question i've got is from Talhab and it says do you like Samson now Samson's where you are at the moment what have you spent this morning doing have you been out exploring Samson I have been out trail running which has been fantastic up in a mountain outside of Samson and this morning it was absolutely chucking it down like a sleety rainy thing which is why it's so gray outside but on this mountain it was snowing so I've just gone for a morning run through pristine white snow and so quiet, just a really beautiful experience. My observation for Samsung is that my host, Sarat, is telling me that three years ago, the house where he lives with his family was basically alone. And in the last two years, probably about, I don't know, 15 blocks of flats have sprung up. And I couldn't believe it. 
Okay, so lots of development. A huge amount of development at breakneck speed. And apparently a huge amount of Turkey's economy has been driven by building um, infrastructure Mm -hmm. and houses. But to see it sort of in front of your eyes of like, this whole space was green, we thought that was our garden. Apparently we don't own it and it's now a block of flats. You know, when you kind of see that in front of your eyes, it really brings home what what development, what building looks like, I suppose. Mm. And how it's all changing so quickly. Very, very rapidly. And apparently there's a lot of people moving from the interior of Turkey to cities like Samson, like Izmir, like Istanbul, like Antalya. But there's this general movement away from villages in the centre of the country to more its periphery where there are larger cities and Ankara as well. So that's quite interesting to hear. So I just really want to share a really interesting fact. Yes, I've just tell been us burning to do it, of the day. Actually. Fact of the um, week. <laughs> I was watching TV, a news report here in Turkey, and generally the the news reports are not particularly interesting. Uh, please, no one take offence. They just haven't been that you know, scintillating. But bear with me. There was a news report okay. about lions. Okay. Are there lions in Turkey? I didn't think there I were. guess they were probably from the zoo. Oh. Now... What do you think the word for a lion is? In Turkish? Yeah. Think of like a really famous children's book. Oh. With a battle between good and evil. Aslan. Yes, you got it. Yeah, it is Aslan. Oh, and I've got <laughs> oh, my high five. Books in the wardrobe book right behind me on my bookshelf. Yeah, but isn't that cool? That's what, As- so presumably C.S. Lewis took the name Aslan from Turkish. I don't know, but I was like... He must have. I doubt the Turkish people took it from an English book. No, no, I don't think so. That's really cool. It's a lion, and Aslan is a lion. How cool is that? For those who haven't heard of Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, a book that can be read on many levels. It is a wonderful book. Can I have one more fact? One more fact. Go for it, Which Luke. is to do with animals as well. Okay, let's have two animal facts for the day. So this is something that Neil told me. It's not actually about animal fact. Oh, but it is. So, you know, the VW beetle. Well, in Turkey, they call it a turtle. Why a turtle, not a beetle? I don't know. But it's called a (laughs) That's an awkward question. I don't know. (laughs) But it's called a turtle. I guess it's got a shell. I guess it's like this sort of the shape of the, yeah, like a shell. The shape of the shell of the turtle. Yeah. Okay. So those are my two fun facts for, for the week. Are you going to keep giving us new fun facts? If I get them. If I get them, yeah. But, Go out of your way to find them. That's what you should be doing. You don't find them. They they find you. They just bubble up and you just need to sort of grab them when you, you see them. So hopefully we'll have some more fun facts next week. Mm. So you've recorded a chat with Suna, who you stayed with in Ankara. Is that correct? Yeah. Suna was just another one of the amazing people who helped me out this past week. So I stayed with her in Ankara. She's this amazing triathlete. She's climbed incredible mountains, which you're going to hear about later. And I was so excited to speak to her a bit for the Bristol to Beijing podcast. She's an incredible, inspirational woman. And I don't think that lots of people, at least from the United Kingdom, would think, oh, women in Turkey do this. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to her, because I think she is awesome. Okay, I look forward to listening to that. I hope you all enjoy. Hey, Suna, it's really, really great to talk. I feel very fortunate that you've allowed me to stay in your home for the last few days. And it's a pleasure. <laughs> so 
it was a friend of a friend when I was in Istanbul who said there's this person that you've got to meet, Suna Yilmaz, she's living in Ankara, just done the most incredible array of things. And, you know, one of the first things you told me when we met is that you did mountain climbing, but not just any old mountain climbing, you have climbed Everest. <laughs> and that was like the last thing I was expecting when I was coming to Ankara, which isn't the most outdoorsy place, to meet someone who has travelled the world and climbed its highest peak. How on earth did you get into that? How did you start mountaineering? Well, in fact, I attended a university club. After I graduated, I'm mm -hmm. a graduate of Mathematics Department of Middle East Technical University. Mm -hmm. I had a boyfriend then, and he was a mountaineer. So he introduced me to mountaineering, and mm -hmm. I started mountaineering with him. And then the thing got serious and serious. The relationship or the mountaineering? In fact, both. I mean, <laughs> we got married then, but the marriage lasted uh, quite a little, only one and a half years. But mountaineering stuff got really very serious. We had a team who was aimed at high altitude mountaineering mm -hmm. because it was a very, you know, a fresh area where you can do the first for Turkish climbing. So there were no women before who climbed Mount Everest from Turkey. So wow. we were aiming at that. And we went there as a team mm -hmm. of 10 people, four women and uh, six uh, men. Mm -hmm. And we all summited. I mean, that's quite uh, rare in the history of climbing of Everest because when you go there as a team, even if one climber summits, it's okay, it's a success for the team, but we all summited. Wow. Not uh, exactly on the same day, but as two separate teams. Do you think the fact that there were four women in that team helped? Yeah, of course. Being a, a team helps, but uh, being four women, it helps more. Because we help each other a lot, mm. psychologically, in every field. That's great, in my opinion. And were you quite conscious that you were making Turkish history? Do you feel like a, a trailblazer? I don't know. Before, there were only two people from Turkey who uh, summited Everest. Mm -hmm. And they were part of international teams and they were men. But after we succeeded, there were 12 people. We were a team. All of us climbed. So... I don't know. I mean, it's it's something really very special for me. And I guess one of the things that I was struck by is that my own preconceptions, I suppose, when coming to Turkey, I was aware that it's quite westernized, Europeanized in some ways, but there is a lot of Islamic influence, more conservative elements. So I wasn't expecting to meet a woman who's outdoors and smashing these, these obstacles down. Do you feel typical? here in Turkey? There are people like me, of course. I mean, in fact, to tell the truth, I am not young. I'm quite <laughs> mature to tell the truth. I'm 48 years old. Suna looks like she's about 29. <laughs> I should say this, and I'm not exaggerating. I genuinely thought, like, when I looked at her WhatsApp picture that I was meeting someone just a few yeah. years out of college. So. so I'm from a generation who have being raised with the influence of Atatürk's principles. Mm. So uh, we really appreciate Atatürk, what he has done to this country. In the schools that I have uh, been all through my life, I mean, uh, the high school, the university, mm. we admire Atatürk a lot. So there are people like me 
But it's a fact that, of course, in the recent times, the last 20 years, things have been changing in Turkey. It's, it's a fact. And how have things been changing in Turkey? This is really very difficult to describe, in fact. And mm. I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't want to go into the details of this so much, but mm. this is not comprised of only an issue. There are lots of issues. I mm. mean, everything has been changing. And mm. people like me, mm. they feel like suffocated. And most of my friends, they migrated to other countries, to European countries, to America, to mm. Australia. But I feel different about this. Of course, this is my country. This mm. is where I belong to. Mm. I want to stay here and I want to change Turkey mm. according to what I believe. If I can, of course, I mean, this is very difficult. But it's not comprised of only a single issue. It has many aspects. Yeah, we were talking earlier this week and you were saying how although the number of universities in Turkey has exploded over the last 30 years, maybe you're saying the standard of education has decreased, even though lots of universities, the education you receive there is not very good. And you were saying if you, you know, to put a child through school, if that was going to be a good education, it would probably you'd need to pay a lot of money, which isn't sort of possible, I suppose, for the vast majority of Turkish families would that yeah. be fair to say yeah you know that's true that's mm. true what to do I don't know I mean my university the university that I have graduated mm-hmm. and I have been working for mm. over uh, 20 years not 24 years now Middle Eastern Technical University yeah, Middle East, here in yeah, Ankara I graduated in 1995 so that makes more than 26 <laughs> years. <laughs> and I have been working there since 97. That's 24 years now. Wow. Things have been changing. I mean, could you pinpoint one or two changes that have happened at the university? Of course, the government wants the university to be governed as they govern the whole country. So the government actually wants to step into the university and say, in the same way that we run the hospitals, we want to run the way this university operates. That's the truth, in fact. Mm. That's what happens in Bosphorus University. Maybe you have been able to analyze from a far point. Mm. This Um, is in Istanbul, right? It's one of the most prestigious universities in Turkey. And Erdogan appointed the, the new rector and... Who doesn't have, it's fair to say, very many academic credentials at all. And he's not from that university at all. I mean, mm. He's not a teacher there. He's mm. not an academic there. Mm. And he's been appointed. So many conspiracy theories are go- <laughs> going behind that thing. And I'm not sure if they are true, but <laughs> if they are true, it's horrific. <laughs> right. You were saying Turkey is your home and we've discussed in the past how many beautiful areas of Turkey there are. And you know, what an amazing country it is, incredibly hospitable people I've experienced. You, you're here, this is your home, you're saying you want to try and make this country better and be part of that positive change. You're now mm-hmm. doing Ironman, half iron distance triathlons, mm-hmm. which for anyone who doesn't know, and this is going to test my knowledge, it's a 1.2 mile swim, 56 mile bike ride, and then a half marathon. Is that right? I'm not sure about the miles, of course, but uh, kilometer oh. wise, it's 1.9 kilometer mm-hmm. swimming, 90 uh, cycling, and half marathon. Running. Yeah. So what we can agree on is it's a bloody long way. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you see you having an opportunity of competing in this quite a new sport in Turkey as part of your way of inspiring girls that are coming through? Do you see it like that? Or is this just something that's quite a personal endeavor that you enjoy for its own sake? I think it's both. It's something personal. After hard times, this was the thing that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And by doing, I felt really alive. That's my antidepressant, maybe, I can call. I think it's mine as well. Exercise is uh, <laughs> yes. absolutely my, my way of and staying I positive. And I think I'm inspiring people too, because mm. when they see me, mm. you know, I'm not really very young, but I still chase some dreams. I have some targets to do. Mm. And I accomplish, and every year I become better and better, mm-hmm. more professional, but I do it in an amateur way, of course. Mm. So I think I inspire people too, of course. Do you see that change in the younger generation of women in particular? Are things moving in a certain direction? Are there many more women coming into ultra endurance sports? Yeah, Is yeah, that happening? Yeah. It's becoming more and more popular in Turkey, mm-hmm. both the triathlon stuff, mm-hmm. the ultra running stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, before... There is a place in Ankara where we train a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lake and there are hills also. Mm-hmm. There would only be us training. I mean, me and my, my friends. But when I go now, I see many people. Mm-hmm. And among, of course, there are women too. Mm-hmm. So it's growing. It's becoming popular. And that was the one of the things I was astounded by when you tell me just how many triathlons happen in Turkey. I, I was expecting there to be maybe two you know or three you know no. but there's i mean yeah. there are many races in fact yeah and it will grow in my opinion so it sounds like a really good reason for me to come back to turkey and do some of yeah, these races <laughs> something i'm trying to make a point of asking everyone i talk to for people who listen to this podcast and think oh i might want to visit turkey i would love to know where your favorite place is in turkey and your favorite Turkish food and your favorite bar or cafe here in Ankara. So where's your favorite place? This is a very difficult question, but I would say Bodrum I like very much because it's by the seaside. Mm -hmm. You can do many activities. I have been to Bodrum for sailing purposes, Mm -hmm. but now in April there's going to be a triathlon race for the first time. Bodrum is special for me, but there's there so are many places. So many places, I mean. I they all differ differ so so much, I mean. And what's your favorite Turkish food? Well, içli köfte. İçli köfte. Yeah, it's a kind of meatball mm-hmm. that's stuffed in fact. Covering is a kind of bulgur thing, uh-huh. you know, bulgur. Yeah, bulgur. Wheat. And inside minced meat and some uh, walnuts. Oh wow. Yeah, that's a favorite one. Okay, that sounds sort of similar to the the Scotch egg. And where is your favorite place to have a coffee or a drink, times beyond COVID, here in Ankara? There's a fish restaurant on my street. Mm -hmm. It's called Yerken. Mm -hmm. Not for coffee, of course. You go there and drink rakı and Mm -hmm. eat meze and have fish. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite place in Ankara, I can say. And it's a killer combination. We had some rakı last night and it was... It's quite similar to... A French spirit, you told Yeah, it's this clear spirit that you mix with cold water and then it goes opaque. So anyone listening will be able to tell us what the um, 
French spirit, it's called, but very delicious. Yeah. Surprisingly milky, even though there's no milk in it. Um, Suna, it's been so lovely to chat. Thank you for your time and thank you for hosting me here in Ankara. No, it's a pleasure. <laughs> so, yeah, I really hope to return in the future. Yeah, that's my wish too, I mean, so that you can come back and tell your whole story <laughs> and it's finished and we can drink more Rakuten. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And that was this week's episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it and thanks so much for listening. We put a lot of time into the podcast, so please do support us by subscribing, reviewing, and rating. And please send in your questions that you have about any aspect of life on the road to Bristol to Beijing on social media. Until next week, goodbye.